Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Thank you and good morning. It's really brilliant to be up here in Manchester. I don't just say this, this is one of my favourite parts of the country. I married a girl from the Wirral. I know that's not the same, but the prettiest women all live in the north of England. And it is genuinely great to be here. And I worked for the Evangelical Alliance. For 14 years, I worked for Youth for Christ, giving my life to trying to reach every single young person in Great Britain with the good news of Jesus. After 14 years, God pointed out to me that there aren't any age sections in heaven. So I've joined the Evangelical Alliance to try and reach all people in the United Kingdom with the good news of Jesus. And you know what? It's been two rubbish weeks, hasn't it? For all kinds of reasons, it's been bad. I am one of the greatest optimists you'll find. I'm one of the few who's utterly convinced two weeks today we will be celebrating a European Championship football win. I am a real optimist. But even for me, these last two weeks are hard. But let me tell you this morning, nothing has changed. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive. And he has power and dominion over this world. And we at the EA just want to say to the church at this time, accept the fact that next to you is probably someone who voted differently to you. But that's okay. Because politics comes second to kingdom. And we need to be the example to the world of how people can live with different views under the authority of a great God and be friends. We need to pray for reconciliation and unity going forward. But more than anything, we need to unite the church in mission in order to reach this world with the good news of Jesus. That's why we're delighted. Ivy is one of the member churches of the EA. There's 3,800 member churches, 80 denominations, 750 organisations and about 20,000 individuals saying, how do we as the 2 million evangelicals in the UK transform this nation for the kingdom of God? That's what we're after. It's exciting. I've suffered for an illness for 15 years now. It's an illness many other men suffer from. It's lovely wife syndrome, right? You marry someone who's just so much nicer than you. Anthony has the same problem. And you marry someone and they're just so much nicer than you. So everywhere you go, everyone says, oh, your wife is wonderful. And I've got this, everyone says, oh, your wife, Anne, is so lovely. She's so wonderful. She's so nice. She's so amazing. And I'm like, what about me? So a few years ago, it was New Year's Eve. And I secretly came up with a New Year's resolution of my own. I didn't tell anyone. I was so sick of this that I decided that I was going to be so nice that next year that Anne would have to refer to me as her lovely husband. I basically decided to be nicer than my wife. And we got to May of that year and I was travelling down to preach at a church in Maidstone. I had this 18-year-old with me who I was mentoring. And he starts explaining on the journey that um, he's failed at his New Year's resolution, which was to read the Bible and pray for half an hour every day. And um, we talk about it, we pray, it's all good. He then says to me, did you have any New Year's resolutions? I'm like, what do I do here? So I said, yeah, I did actually. Um, I wanted to be nicer than Anne. He said, you've made absolutely no progress. <laughs> he said, has anyone called you nice? I said, no. And we turn up at this church in Maidstone, big church called St. Luke's. And this is no word of a lie. This is what happens. We turn up in the back hall and this woman comes straight over to us and says to me, you seem like a really nice man. At this moment, the minister there, a guy called Eric Delve, a friend of mine, walks over really quickly from the other corner of the hall. And he walks over really quickly to me and he says, I'm really sorry, Gavin. I'm really sorry. But whatever she says, completely ignore it. Because she keeps saying things that aren't true and offending people. 
And do you know what? I realised that day, maybe God didn't make me to be nice, but he made me to be other things. And I want to look at today, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What kind of heart do we need to follow Jesus? What kind of people do we need to be to see the kind of transformation we want to see? So if you've got a Bible, if you turn it on, and we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read the most unfamiliar part of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 25. It says this, it says, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. You know, here it feels like Paul has suddenly got sidetracked, We've, he's got sidetracked and started talking about Epaphroditus and First Timothy, but he's not sidetracked. Because what is Philippians 2? It's the great hymn of the early church. You know, your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know, it was the great hymn. I grew up in a church in South London where Graham Kendrick, who's about this tall, was the worship leader. And so we sang Shine Jesus Shine every day, right? That was like, this is the Shine Jesus Shine of the early church. Or in more recent times, there's um, Tim Hughes who wrote Light of the World. Or, or more recently, Matt Redman who wrote 10,000 Reasons. Why are all worship leaders the size of hobbits? Anyway, um, it's a total side issue. It's like, I was, it's like I was biologically born not to lead worship. But you know what? In the early church, the song that got everyone in the mood was Philippians 2. And Paul seems to be sidetracked at the end. But he's not sidetracked. He's saying this. He's saying Epaphroditus is living out the song, not just singing the song. And I think in the United Kingdom, one of the biggest threats to Christianity is that we will have people who love the perennial bless up, who love the latest great book, the latest great fad, the latest four W's for how to transform their community, who'll go to every conference they could ever be and every moment they could ever be, but won't live any of it out. Epaphroditus is celebrated because he'll sing the song, but he'll live the walk as well. And Epaphroditus is only mentioned for five verses in the Bible, but he is referred to by theologians as a balanced Christian with the right heart for mission. And that makes me wonder, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a balanced Christian? Because maybe there's somewhere in which we're not living how we should be. So the first thing a balanced Christian needs is a faithful heart. A faithful heart. In verse 25, Paul calls him my brother. He's faithful as a brother. You know, we live in an unfaithful culture, don't we? I realised that again yesterday. I went to my favourite place to go on a Saturday yesterday. I went to the dump. I love going to the dump because you have the best conversations with people. You rub shoulders with people you never normally meet at the dump. And I went to the dump and I was dropping off a few things and there was this massive crate that was new and I looked in it. Do you know what it's full of? TVs. I thought, hang on, Del boy, we're in here. Do you know what? When I was a boy, the most successful shop at the end of the road was the TV repair shop. You don't repair your TV now, you throw it away. Why? Because we live in an instant culture. 
It's the zip breaks on your trousers, you throw them in the bin. If you don't feel right in your marriage, you leave your wife. What's going on with our world? And in the midst of it, God calls us to be faithful. You know, if we want to transform any part of our community for Jesus, the first thing that starts is that we are faithful to Jesus the rest of our lives, regardless of what life throws at us. We've got to be faithful. It was about 12 years ago now, my wife decided she wanted to have children. I was like, fair play. After a few years, nothing had happened. So I felt really sorry for Anne because she quite clearly had a fertility issue. And so we went through the tests and stuff and it wasn't Anne, it was me. I was told I was basically sterile and that we probably wouldn't have children. You know, the month after we were told that, my wife got pregnant. Saviour, he can move the mountains. He can when he chooses to impregnate women from sterile men. Nine months later, our lovely Amelie came along. It was 18 months after that. My dad was over. My mum and dad live in America, so, but they're British. So when they come to England, I try and make them feel at home. So I went out to get the national dish of Great Britain to make him feel at home. I went out to get a curry, right? <laughs> and I come back to the house with the curry. And my wife, Anne's crying, and my dad looks like he's seen a ghost. And so I put the curry down, and Anne says to me, I'm pregnant again. I said, who's the dad? <laughs> you should never say that. You always assume a miracle. Obviously, the dad was me. And we went for a scan a little while along. And um, I'm going to help some of you fellas here who've never had kids. When you go for the scan, just pretend you can see it. So much easier that way. And even though it looks like the combination between a sultana and a mushroom, it is cute, right? And we went for this scan. And um, it was really quite sad, actually, genuinely. It was a horrible moment because we got the ultrasound scan, but there was no sound. And the midwife turns to us and says, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm really sorry. Your baby hasn't got a heartbeat. It's died in the womb. You know what? In that moment, I'm struggling. I'm like, Lord, I can deal with miracle babies. I can deal with no babies. But what are you doing? And my little daughter, Amelie, was 18 months old and she came over and hugged me on the leg. And it's one of the times in my life I felt God speak most profoundly to me. I felt God say to me, do not be ungrateful for that which you don't have, but be grateful for that which you do. And be faithful to me as I've been faithful to you for the rest of your life. And I came out there to thinking, all right, Lord, whatever. Whatever life throws, we'll stick at this. You know, about a year and a half later, Anne got pregnant again. By this point, I accepted I'd been healed. You know, it, it just got ridiculous. I've clearly been healed. Yeah. You know, without going into too much detail, you're northerners, you can cope. You know, I had a snip three days after our second child was born because they were worried that I'd get Anne pregnant again. But, you know, <laughs> when our second child, third child, but the second child that made it into the world was 18 weeks old, about that big in the womb, it was quite clear he was really sick. You know someone's sick when two medics are with you in the room and by the end there's 24 medics and they're all coming to have a look. And there was fluid everywhere around the baby and the baby was heavily anemic and there's four antibodies. They're not the common ones you can have the sort of injection for. Four antibodies that they can't cure, they can only intervene with that my wife and I both have. And our baby was given a 5% chance of survival in the womb at 18 weeks. And they did a blood transfusion the next day where they took out half the baby's blood and put half new blood in. There were two donors on the blood list in the UK with the right blood. We signed our lives away to Cambridge University to study us because they hadn't come across this before. And you know what? They did this transfusion and after that, Anne would sleep for four hours, then they would scan because there's no cure, just intervention. If the baby was moving at the scan that night, it had survived a heart attack from having that much blood put in. If the baby wasn't moving, it was over. And I sat by Anne's bed feeling desperate. You know, people say, why does God allow suffering? When you know God, that's not the question. The question is, where is God when you're suffering? I'll tell you where he was, he was holding my hand. And I felt compelled to pray a simple prayer. Lord, if this baby lives, you're good. 
And if this baby dies, you're still good. Either way, tomorrow, somehow I'm going to get up and say that you're good. You know, we had nine of those in the womb. My son was eventually delivered 10 weeks early. You know, he was incredibly ill. When the professor lifted him up out of the womb, we weren't allowed to touch him for about three weeks and lifted him up out of the womb to show us. And at that moment, he weed in the professor's face. (laughs) My wife was embarrassed and I was like, that's my son. (laughs) He was in the incubator for months. Eventually though, he was fine. You know, if you saw him this morning, he looks like he's eaten a premature baby. But I'll tell you something. (laughs) In the hardest of times, God is still good. Whatever's going on in the UK right now, God is still good. Whatever happened in Orlando, whatever's happening, God is still good. And we have to be faithful to the God who is faithful, even when we don't have all the answers. And in an unfaithful culture, the start of Christianity is a faithful heart that says, Lord, I give you my heart. Whatever happens, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, all I've got is yours, Lord. I lay it all to you, over to you. I will be faithful to you till I meet you face to face. Secondly, we need a messenger's heart. We need a messenger's heart. In verse 25, Epaphroditus is called a messenger. You know, we mustn't drop words. The church mustn't drop words. We've got to proclaim whose we are. Post-modernity says, here I am. Here's the world revolving around me. Who I am is what matters. No, whose we are is what matters. We are children of the living God. And I worry sometimes that we've sold out to sanctified humanism instead of sharing word as well as deed. We've got to open our mouths. My first speaking engagement at the EA last June, I went and spoke at this conference. It's 300 men at this conference in Scotland. I did an appeal at the end and seven gave their lives to Jesus, which is brilliant. Later in the day, the organiser of the conference came up to me. He says, that was amazing. We didn't see anyone come to faith last year. I said, did you ask? He says, no. I said, it's not going to happen by osmosis. We've got to be prepared to declare Jesus. You know, a friend of mine came to Britain as a missionary, never been on an aeroplane before, gets to Heathrow Airport, come from Uganda, gets, sorry, from Nigeria, comes to Heathrow Airport, he collects his bags, he's got a decision to make, he's never had to make before, something to declare or nothing to declare. So he goes through something to declare. He says to the guy on customs, I declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing you'll have life in his name. <laughs> the guy on customs is like, what? He says, I declare that Jesus died for you. They let him in. Have we forgotten we've got something to declare? We must never be afraid to speak up. Now we speak up in love, but, but I just wonder sometimes if we work the soil so much, but we've forgotten sometimes to spread that seed. We need to be faithful. We need to have a messenger's heart. Thirdly, we need a servant heart. We need a servant heart. Epaphroditus was sent to serve Paul in Ephesus or Rome. There are three books on Amazon describing whether it was Ephesus or Rome all come to the same conclusion. We can be unsure as to whether or not Paul was in prison in Ephesus or Rome. I think people need to spend their time more wisely than writing books about it. But behind his sensitivity towards others is an utter consecration to Jesus. It's why there's not two greatest commandments, there's one. If you love God that much, you can't help but love his people. You can't help but love your neighbour. If we love Jesus how we should love Jesus, then we should not be able to help but love others. Behind our utter sold out love for Jesus comes a desire to help others. But the problem is this, we're selfish. And we live in a world that tells us it's all about us, don't we? I realised how selfish I was when we did first have children. Children are amazing, aren't they? They let you take them home from hospital with very little instruction. 
I remember saying to him, what do we do with it? And you have these children and they change your life. And you start doing stuff for them. You start serving them in a way you never thought you'd serve another person. Greatest example of that, potty training. Remember when my daughter was being potty trained, she'd sorted out the front, but the back was a challenge. And she came up to me and I was weeding our front drive. She says, Daddy, Daddy, I've done it again. And so I looked for the pool. I couldn't find it anywhere. I looked everywhere. In the end, I noticed in my neighbour's drive, about the size of a foot and with steam coming from it, was my daughter's latest deposit. I thought, can I pretend it belongs to a dog? But I realised I needed to clear it up, so I bleached it. It was the next day after this, and I noticed sticking out of Amelie's leggings was another deposit. Now, the real problem was not that she'd done that. The problem was Anne was away overnight. If Anne had been at home, I just would have pretended I hadn't seen it, right? And so I line Amelie up on the rug. I've got the potty there, and I, and I pull down her leggings, and the poo's heading for the potty, right? The last minute, it makes a turn for the worst. It's heading for the rug. Instinctively, I dive, and I catch it. And Amelie comes up to me and goes, Daddy, 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 guess what's in your hand? Guess what's in your hand? It's a poo. <laughs> do you know what? There is nothing I wouldn't do for my children. But God is calling us to stop thinking about relatives biologically and start thinking about who he made. Who is there that you need to serve as if they were your flesh and blood? Because you know what? We need the heart that doesn't just want to talk to people about Jesus, wants to share and love. That, that thing about the dentures, I hope there's an embarrassing amount of money in that offering. Why? Because this is a brilliant opportunity to do for someone what you wouldn't do for anyone other than your own family. Because why? Because we've got to have a heart that's faithful to Jesus. I'm with you forever, but we've got to have a heart that says, do you know what as well? I'm going to open my mouth about you. We've got to have a heart too that says, you know what, Lord? I'm going to serve others as if they were my own flesh and blood. Why? Because that's what balanced Christians do. And then finally, Epaphroditus has a risk-taking heart. He endured a life-threatening illness to complete his commission. In verse 30, it says he almost died. Literally, he drew near to death. In the Greek, the words to death are only used at one other point in the same way in the New Testament. And that's when they cut Jesus' side. You know when they cut Jesus' side on the cross and blood and water flow from it? It's a sign of a heart attack, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he dies of a heart attack. And blood and water flow from his side. It's the same Greek used there. That's how close Epaphroditus came to death. He was really close to death. But the words risking his life tell us more. There's a Greek verb here, parabolomai. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's only used here. Elsewhere, it was a gambling term. It was to go all in. Now, obviously, being a holy man, I, I don't know about the rules of things like poker, but some of you may understand card games. And what happens is, if you've got the perfect hand, right, you say all these chips, they're going all in, right? I'm going to risk everything on this hand because this is the perfect hand. Don't do that on England winning the Euros. And to parabolomai yourself is to go all in. It's to say, I hold nothing back. Everything's going in. It's a gambling term, but in the case of Epaphroditus, he takes a calculated risk on the greatness of God. He says, God is so great that I will go all in with everything I have. I will leave nothing on the table. That's the kind of Christianity that will change the world. But I wonder sometimes if we give God a little bit and keep loads to ourselves when actually what we're being called to is is a heart that takes risks and says do you know what I will risk everything I have on the greatness of God it was this verb that that inspired a bunch of people in the early church called the parabolani the parabolani were known 
for sharing in word and deed their faith to anyone, anywhere, at any time who was in need. The Parabolani took risks. They knew they had God in their lives. They knew they were saved and they were prepared to risk their humanity for others. For example, they sent evangelists into leper colonies. Now I'm brave, but I'd struggle with that. Because going into a leper colony in that day was a death sentence. Once you've gone in, you're not allowed out again. But their view was, how else are the lepers going to be reached for Jesus unless one of us goes? The Parabolani would work certain um, areas in prisons where, where people would have such illnesses, they were so infectious and so ill that the soldiers wouldn't look after them. The Parabolani would go and look after them, take care of them, lead them to Jesus and often die with them too. The Parabolani risked all they were to make a difference in their environment. And in 252 AD, the great city of Carthage was in danger of being destroyed. So Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, called on the Parabolani to come en masse to save the city because the city was being destroyed by the plague. The plague had ravaged the city. Bodies were piled on top of each other. Animals were transferring the illnesses. People weren't getting rid of the bodies because by doing so, you might catch the plague. And the sun was beating down on the bodies. The diseases were, were ravaging the place. The place was being destroyed. And the Parabolani went in en masse into Carthage and they buried the bodies in the name of Jesus. And they told anyone who would listen why they were doing it. And two things happened. The city was saved. Secondly, arguably the biggest revival in the first 500 years of the church happened in Carthage. Because the Parabolani didn't just say they did. Because the Parabolani were so faithful to God, they knew where they were going, even if it cost them everything. And because the Parabolani would take a risk and go all in on the greatness of God. Which just leads me to wonder, where's the postmodern Parabolani? Where's it gone? Who are the people that are going to rise up and say, do you know what, Lord? I'm yours forever. I've got a faithful heart. Do you know what, Lord? I'll share forever. I've got a messenger's heart. Do you know what, Lord? I'm prepared to serve others. I'll have a servant heart. And do you know what, Lord? I'll have a risk-taking heart. Why? Because I want to see this nation changed for you. And when I think of who most sums it up for me, I'm, I'm left with my granddad. My late granddad was a great man. I'm from kind of Christian mafia, right? Like generations of people in ministry. And um, I'm going to have to come up with a good idea. You know, my, gra- my old, old man started Spring Harvest. My granddad started Tear Fund. So I need to come up with a good idea quite soon. But... Um, My granddad was a great man. He'd preached every week until he was 85. Then he decided to take early retirement. And so he stopped. He'd been a Bible college principal. He'd run the EA, done all kinds of things. He'd written more books than most of us have read. He was a great man, knew everything. Except he then lost his body. His body went wrong. For five years, he had a number of strokes. In the end, he sat for 20 hours a day in a chair. That was it, just sleeping. All that still worked was his mind and only for 30 seconds at a time. And his terrible sense of humour still worked too. I realised that because I was around for Sunday lunch once and my grandma was saying about the negative impact witchcraft was having on the church in Britain. My granddad was asleep. After two hours, he woke up and said, I know all about witches, having lived with one for 60 years. <laughs> he then went back to sleep. That was all I got out of him. And it was their diamond wedding anniversary. The great and the good of their Christian age group had gathered in this massive auditorium to celebrate them. You know, when you're in ministry, you get paid badly and thanked very little. If anyone in this church has blessed you with their ministry, thank them. Because you get so criticised and don't get the same rewards other people get. So just thank people. But this was their equivalent of the ministry Oscars. 
The great and the good gathered in this huge place, person after person paid tribute to them. Firstly, the Bible college principle. I couldn't have done it without Gilbert and Connie Kirby. That were the names. Couldn't have done it without you. Then the Bible translator. Then the church planter. Then the business leader. At first it was fun. After three hours of tributes, we'd all had enough. Apart from my granddad, who'd been asleep the whole time. And then it came to the very last piece, which was a telegram that was read out that had been sent in from Sir Cliff Richard that said that Gilbert and Connie Kirby had been the most significant spiritual influence of anyone in his life. This moment, the place went mad. There were blue rinse wigs flying. There were false teeth coming out of mouths. Zimmer frames going over the... You know, well, not quite, but people were excited. Except for my little cousin who said, who's Sir Cliff Richard? <laughs> and then my grandma got up to thank everyone for coming. Thanks for coming. We couldn't have done it without you. It's been great. It's been a great adventure. Then something dangerous happened. My granddad woke up and he showed his 30 seconds of breath were upon him. So he got wheeled up to the platform. He got the microphone. He said, I'm not thanking any of you for coming. We did it because Jesus, who is God, came from highest heaven to lowest earth. And he walked the earth, giving food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. Then he died upon a cross, taking every wrong thing upon himself you've ever done, ever will do, ever could do. That you needn't be punished, but could live forever and know life in all its fullness now too. Then they stuck him in a grave. But three days later, they went to see him and he was gone because Jesus is God. And for God to be God, he has to be alive. So he defeated death. He rose again and he wants a relationship with you today. And if you don't know Jesus and want to surrender your life to him now, would you just stand? Now, bear in mind, there's less than 10 non-Christians in the room. Six people stood. And then my granddad fell asleep. So he couldn't even pray the prayer, welcoming him into the kingdom. He got wheeled off. Someone else prayed the prayer. But do you know what I love about it? He was 92 then. He died six months later. That's the last time he spoke into a microphone. But at 92, he was still faithful to the God who'd been faithful to him. At 92, he still carried a message of hope that transformed people's lives. At 92, he was still prepared to serve God with what he had. And at 92, he was a risk taker because he ruined a wonderful British social occasion (laughs) by being hopelessly confrontational with the message of hope he'd carried all his life. When I grow up, I want to be like him. But I want to be faithful, don't you? rest of my days, Jesus, you've got me. I want to be a messenger. You know, I want to be servant-hearted. Even though I find opening my mouth easier than loving, I want to love. But I don't want to be risk-averse. I want to take risks for Jesus, don't you? Because I want to see Britain transformed for Jesus. And that probably needs a load of balanced Christians. Faithful messengers with servant hearts who take risks. Let's pray, shall we? Firstly, I just wonder, I can't, I can't come here and not give the opportunity. If there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Saviour, you don't know what it is to follow Jesus. You, you don't know what it is to live for Jesus. If that's you this morning, there's no greater time to give your life to Jesus than here today. When it seems there's so much despair going on around in the world, you can hold on to hope. Or maybe I felt in the way I was, I was coming up here, I just felt a sense that there's some people who are playing charades with Jesus. you're claiming this Christian badge, but you're just not living it. You're miles away from Jesus in your life and it's time to recommit your life. And if either of those are you this morning, I wonder if you, no one's looking at you, but do you want to just put your hand up if either of those are you this morning, whether it's the first time or recommitment of your life to Jesus today. Let's put it up nice and high. That's great. And then secondly, just have this nagging sense where is the postmodern parabolani? Where are the people that are prepared to risk absolutely everything they have on the worthiness of God?
Where, where are those people that are prepared to say, do you know what, Lord, I so know you and I so love you that I will go all in with you. I am holding nothing back on the table. I will be faithful to you the rest of my life. Whatever life throws at me, whatever illness, whatever poverty, whatever joy, whatever wealth, I'm, I'm faithful to you. I will be a messenger, Lord. I, I may not find it easy, but I will open my mouth for you. And I will be a servant, Lord. I will seek to love others how I've only ever loved myself or my family. But where are those people that would risk all they have on the worthiness of Jesus? And I just have a real sense that here this morning, there's a bunch of us that need to parabolomai ourselves for Jesus. We need to say, do you know what, Lord? Nothing on the table, I'm going all in. Everything I have on the worthiness of you. I want to be part of a postmodern parabolani, giving all I have that the world might know that you are king. And if that's you and you're able, just invite you where you are to stand, if that's you this morning. If you want to be part of that in this place. know we'll get it wrong as often as we might get it right but we say to you now our heart's desire is to be all in for you Lord forgive us for those times when we perhaps hold too much back for ourselves help us be more focused on you and your greatness Lord I pray that our reputation would be less important than yours I pray Lord that our success would be less important than yours And I pray, Lord, that our identity would be less important than yours, that we would be children of the living God. I pray for those stood in particular, Lord, that you would be close to them, that these next 24, 48 hours or so, you would be close, you would be with them, and you would help them to be bold. I pray, Lord Jesus, that um, we would have opportunities to serve those we wouldn't otherwise choose to. I pray, Lord, that we would open our mouths, you'd give us opportunities to do that. I pray, Lord, that no one in this place would be lost from your number. And I pray, Lord, that this place would be defined by whose we are, not who we are. We are your children and we want to see change. Whatever the price tag, Lord, help us be that postmodern parabolomai, giving all we have for the worthiness of you. Might we seek to bless you with our lives before we dare ask you to bless us again. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.